What's up, guys, and welcome to another Chatterday here on Spill the Tea with B&T. I'm your host, Tori. And I am your host, Brooke. And today we will be getting into a little bit of a heavier-hitting topic. Um, our last couple Chatterdays have been more lighthearted, but we did want to um, kind of talk about this. Like Tori and I said in our very first episode, that if we just do this podcast and we don't talk about things that are important to us or things that we know other people are experiencing... There's no point in doing this podcast at all. So today we will be talking about mental health. And yeah, like Brooke said, we want to talk about things that are important to us. Like we have funny stories, but obviously there's a lot more to it than just all the funny things. And we want to be as real with you guys as possible. Um, I obviously have had my own mental struggles. If you guys know me personally, um, I've struggled with mental health from the age of 13 onwards. And I actually have a lot of mental health issues of my own, so I suffer from anxiety, depression, and ADHD, and that's just all that they've been diagnosed me with so far. You know, we don't know what the years can bring. Maybe a little couple more surprises, you know? Throw in a couple more meds in there. I also have anemia. Um, my list of mental health illness is too extensively long to get in, but pretty much um, severe anxiety, um, bipolar depression disorder and um, ADHD as well. And pretty much I have, um, I guess the way to describe like, um, I've been diagnosed with a form of multiple personality disorder, but it's not where I think I have like multiple. It's not like the movie split where I, you know, talk about like, oh, I have Patricia and Susie and whatever. Um, My form is pretty much I will never feel accomplished with no matter what I do. I could run a marathon. I could get a job paying six figures a year and pretty much I will never feel accomplished or I will never feel like I've done enough in my lifetime. And you know, since we both suffer with so many disorders, maybe that's why Brooke and I love each other so much because we're both so imperfect and I think that's okay. And we want to talk about it because, you know, there is still a stigma with mental health and I think we're getting better about it, but also like in the ways we're getting better with some things, we're getting worse about some things. And I have some pet peeves that some people don't care but it does bother me like when people say, oh, that, I have anxiety because they get nervous before a test or, oh, I'm so depressed because their favorite show ended or, you know what I mean? It's things that they're using disorders to describe things. And it's one thing to say like, yeah, I'm sad. I'm upset, whatever. I'm anxious. But it's another to say, oh, I have anxiety because, because sometimes you get butterflies on roller coasters. Like, I just think it diminishes the value and how severe, not the value, but it diminishes how severe a disorder can be and how debilitating it can be. Like, I remember in high school, I used to get panic attacks so bad that I would have to go in the bathroom and call my mom because I was like going to pass out. Like, I remember one time I was walking in the hallway and I got so sick and dizzy that I like blacked out and I stumbled in the bathroom, passed out on the bathroom floor and had to call my mom to have her talk me through it. And like, looking at wedding venues with Zach, I literally passed out on this guy's lawn because just the anxiety. And I remember getting my freaking braces fitted. I was at the orthodontist office getting the x-rays done to take pictures of my teeth. Guess who passes out? This bitch. And I think like it's one thing and I feel like it depends how you use it, but I don't like people lessening the severity and like how hard it is to live with something by saying you know, just throwing it around. I feel like it does make it more normal, but not in the way that it needs to be. 
Yeah, I know that my anxiety, like I have super bad social anxiety. And if you like, if you know me, you're like, whatever, like, no, you're so sweet. You know, you talk to everyone. But like, whenever I have to go to the store, like I have like a full blown panic attack. Like I get this weird thing where I'm like, oh my God, are people looking at what's in my grocery cart? Are they judging me for what's in my grocery cart? Um, going to the doctors is horrible. Job interviews, horrible because the second you leave, you're like, okay, so I'm a piece of shit and they're never going to fucking hire me and they hate me and this, this and that. It's just, it's so hard to, I mean, like Tori said, it literally can be a debilitating like disorder. I mean, there are times where I've been so depressed that I can't even get out of bed, let alone clean my house, let alone cook a dinner for me and my fiance, you know, do certain things. And it's so hard because it, it not only takes a toll on you, but I mean, there's been many more like, many relationships that it's taken a toll on for me, friendships, etc. It's, I mean, there's so many different forms of mental illnesses themselves. And, you know, we're going to kind of touch on some statistics and different topics, but unfortunately we can't get into everything. Not only that, we are not a psychiatrist or anything like that. We are not in any medical background like medical field. I don't want to be like, oh, if this is how you're feeling, you have this. Like I'm not going to diagnose anyone, but we do want to bring, you know, some awareness because I know how alone it can make you feel and how, you know, isolating it can be to feel like you're the only person struggling with this. And we have a lot of our own personal stories that we want to share with you guys. Like we said, we're just sharing our own experiences and things that we've found researching this stuff. And we just want to kind of let everybody know, like, you're not alone. Like we experience this too. And there are a lot of other people experience this too. And we both have like really, really deep stories. And oh, with that. So we do want to get into this saying that there is going to be a trigger warning right now to say this does include um, talking about suicide, self-harm, sexual abuse, eating disorders. You know, we just want anybody that's sensitive to any of these topics to please just click off. You know, we care about your mental health and this may not be the best episode for you if you're suffering right now this you know this may be a great episode for you to listen to this may not be but if you don't think you can handle it we definitely definitely advise for you to click off um so with that we're going to start into some of the statistics and each you know each statistic will kind of sidebar make our own comments and then talk about our own experiences um but one in five adults will be diagnosed with a mental health condition in any given year and that's just the diagnosis that's the people that you know get diagnosed there are many people that are struggling with mental health and they don't you know have the insurance to get the help they need or they you know it's it's something that it takes a lot of courage to kind of go in and say like hey I'm struggling mentally I need help and to get on certain forms of medications I remember in high school crying to my mom because I was like I don't want to have to take a pill to be happy I just want to be like everyone else and be able to be happy normally and so you know these are just the people that have been diagnosed with a disorder or a mental health condition so 50% of mental health issues are established by age 14 and 75 by age 24 and I'm 23 and so is Brooke right now and I think We've both gotten a lot of diagnosis. <laughs> so, like I said, I have struggled with mental health um, from the age of 14. I was officially diagnosed at the age of 16, and I was also institutionalized by the age of 17 for um, different suicide attempts um, and just my struggles with mental health. So, anxiety is the most commonly diagnosed mental illness in America. Which... 
if you think about it, like Tori said, a lot of people will just be like, I have anxiety about this. But these are people that went and sat down with a doctor or a psychiatrist or whatever, and they were diagnosed with this condition. And half of these people will develop these conditions by the age of 14, like I said, which being a teenager is hard enough, let alone to have such a heavy diagnosis at the age of 14. Like that's that's so heavy to get. And when I get a little bit more into my story, I will tell you kind of some different diagnosis I got from being a teenage girl. And like, it's hard to separate what of that is really being a teenage girl and what of that is actual like mental health problems. And so, you know, we're both going to share our stories and mine does include a lot of talk about that. Um, 40% of people will meet criteria for a diagnosable for a diagnosable mental health condition sometime in their life. And half of those people will develop those conditions by the age of 14, like I said earlier. So about 17.3 million U.S. adults have major depression, about 3.1 million youth. So the ages 12 to 17 have major depression. Major depression is also one of the most commonly diagnosed mental illnesses. And like I said earlier, People sometimes just like, you'll say like, oh, I've been diagnosed with depression and they just think it's like, oh, you're sad. No, it's like, I can't get out of bed. I can't spend time with my family. I can't spend time with my friends. I can't reach out for help. Depression is such a heavy diagnosis to live with. And it is something, you know, even though it says like 17.3 million U.S. adults are diagnosed with it and 3.3 million adolescents. Um it's still something you just, or sorry, 3.1 million youth are diagnosed with major depression. It's still something that just makes you feel so alone and so isolated. Over 12 million U.S. adults have been diagnosed with PTSD. 3.7% of youth are diagnosed within any given year, and 5.7 adults are diagnosed in any given year. Um, I do live with PTSD from some pretty traumatic childhood situations I went through. And, you know, even though I'm 23, I still struggle with things that I went through as a child that it was so out of my control that I like have like compulsion problems because of it because like I you know it's just something that because of my childhood feeling so out of control in certain parts of my life that I am kind of like struggling to maintain or I don't want to feel like I'm losing any control in my adult life. So on average 1.5 million U.S. adults live with schizophrenia. And schizophrenia is, for those of you that that don't know, um, it's pretty much just kind of like seeing things, hearing things, um, so much more that goes into it. But that would, I've luckily never really encountered anything like that. But if you do, my heart goes out to you that, you know, that's something, unfortunately, I cannot sympathize with, but just know that, like, you're not crazy. Because I feel like the second you're, like, diagnosed with a, like, a, a disorder like that, people are like, oh, so you're crazy. And it's like, no, not at all. Well, and the sad thing too is there's a lot of people who are homeless that, you know, can't afford the necessary medical treatment and they can't get jobs because their schizophrenia prevents them from being able to live a normal life. And so they end up homeless. And that's so sad and so heartbreaking. And I was watching a video of someone who has schizophrenia and it's so crazy to see how many times he stopped just in a 10 minute long video by hearing voices or seeing things and it it really interrupts your life so much and it's it's so heartbreaking to see and it really does lead to a lot of people being homeless because if you look at it most people who are homeless do have you know mental disorders and that's something really heavy to think about is it's 
some people have a certain view on that. Like, you know, if you're homeless, it's your choice. But I mean, if you got to think about the people who really can't afford to get the help that they need and deserve. And I think, you know, mental health is so important and you, it should be something that should be taken care of. And I think that's a right is you should be able to have your mental health taken care of. 9.8 million adults have reported suicidal thoughts or tendencies in the last year. Um, like I said, I was hospitalized at the age of 17 for suicidal tendencies, and that was something that did not just end after my hospitalization. That is something that I have struggled with, you know, for a very, very long time. And, you know, that's, it's so hard because people kind of just, like, diminish that. And how many times do you hear people be like, I'm just going to kill myself? Like, and, you know, like, sometimes, like, you say it in, like, a jokingly matter, but there are people that are literally struggling just to continue to live their lives and are fighting a battle that, you know, unfortunately, not everyone is going to make that battle or win that battle. So 3.9 million who identify as LGBTQ have experienced mental health struggles. And we did touch on this in our LGBTQ episode. That's actually our very first episode. If you do want to hear more about it, you can listen to that. We talk about how people who are LGBTQ, you know, they have a lot more of a risk for being suicidal or suicidal thoughts, self-harm, things like that because of the horrible struggles that they face from people being cruel. Less than 50% of returning veterans in need will receive any mental health treatment. And that is something that, you know, I am very, everyone kind of, you see it on social media, the 22 push-ups a day trend, things like that to bring health to, or bring awareness to mental health for veterans or anyone serving. And unfortunately, it's something that you know, I do have friends who are in the military and they say that they can't talk openly about it because the military kind of, you know, you report certain things, the military can kick you out. They can, you know, all these things. And you're also viewed as weak because, you know, if you ask for help and that's just so hard because these are people that are literally putting their lives on the line for us. And, you know, 50% of those people will never receive any form of help. And that is, I mean, just heartbreaking. So 22 veterans die by suicide every year, majorly linked with PTSD that goes untreated. I actually watched a TikTok video of someone who is in the military and he said that, you know, he called to say, hey, I need some mental health, like help, you know, and he called him and they said, yeah, it'll be October. And that was in July. And then he said, okay, well, I'm going to kill myself. And they were like, "Mm, all right, we'll see what we can do. Could you imagine how many people live with PTSD in the military and this guy had to wait until October? Who says by October he'll still be alive? And that's so, that's such a depressing thought to think about, but it's a very real thought. And that's something that really needs to be thought about and addressed. And it's really, it's really sad to see people go through something like that and not have access to the help that they need. And we have talked about our friend Garrett before. He is in the Marines. And we, you know, last time he was home, him and I were kind of having a heart to heart because he's one of those people that I reach out to when I am struggling mentally. And he is one of the people that I know I can always count on to talk to without judgment, without, you know, hearing anything about, you know, like, okay, you're just being dramatic or whatever. He is one of those people that he will listen and he will talk. And he said how hard it is to receive any mental health in, you know, the Marines, because like I said, like the military can kick you out. 
um, because you're diagnosed with a mental illness, you know, different things like that. And he actually knew a couple people who had unfortunately committed suicide because of undiagnosed mental health. And that's just heartbreaking because like I said, these are people who are risking their lives every day for us who are busting their ass. And it is so sad to think that like, they're not getting any help. And that's just, I always am like, Garrett, if you are ever struggling, like call me, text me. So with that being said, Brooke and I do want to talk about our stories a little bit. Like I said, I was diagnosed with my first um, mental health disorder at the age of 16. And that was something really hard for me to reach out and ask my family for help. I had struggled for a long time before that, but at 16 is kind of when I just hit my breaking point. Being a teenager is hard. Being a girl with hormones is hard. Um, we reached out. We got me um, an appointment with my family practitioner where I was diagnosed some um, antidepressants. By the age of 17, I had been hospitalized for um, a suicidal attempt. And that was super, super hard to go through because not only do you feel so alone because you're obviously institutionalized, you don't have really any contact with your friends. Um, your family can come on a visiting basis, um, only X amount of people at a time. My mom and my dad were, you know, the people who came and visited. And it was something that was super, super hard. Um, when I had gotten out of the hospital, you know, I remember sitting, my brother had a green Montero and I remember sitting in the driveway of my parents' house and just sobbing to him and him crying. And it was so hard because it's the first time I had ever like really told him like, I did not want to be alive. Like I did not know if I was going to make it through. I did not know, you know, at that point when you kind of make a attempt like that, you obviously, you're just done. And that was, I mean, that was a big thing for me. That was so, so hard. And it's something that I continue to struggle with. Um, I, like I said, I have a lot of um, underlying childhood trauma that played a big role into it. Um, at the age of 17, I had pulled some um, public records on some things that I had gone through as a child. And it kind of just, it threw my whole world into a whirlwind. And it was something that, I mean, it literally flipped my my entire world upside down. And even moving forward, like I said, I am 23 today. I still struggle with these things. There are still things that literally give me like post-traumatic stress flashbacks. Like I, there's just Arby's. I won't go into it. Cannot eat Arby's to this day. Um, the little praying hand statues. That's a big trigger for me. That's a whole nother story. Um, just certain things. And it's, I'm obviously very grateful that I have the support system that I do. I have my friends. I have my family that I know I can reach out to. But there are a lot of people that don't have that support system. Um, I struggled with self-harm. I struggled with an eating disorder. And that's just, it's a lot, as a, not only as a person, but as a teenager who is trying to figure their shit out and you feel like you can't. And like I said, there was a point where I remember sitting in my mom's room and just crying to her because I was like, why? Like, why can't I just be happy? And if you think about all the things that play into it. It's not just happiness. Like, why can't I live a normal life? Why can't I go to school without feeling like everyone's against me? Why can't I, you know, go to my friend's house without having a panic attack on the way there? It's just, it's so exhausting. And there, there's just so much that plays into it. So my story is actually pretty similar to Brooks in, in quite a few ways, but um, anxiety runs on both sides of my family. And then my mom, thank you, Cheryl, for giving me ADHD. And then same thing, depression runs on both sides of my family. So I was pretty much fucked from the start. You know, they just said, 
mix up all the mental illnesses and throw it into this girl. So I remember I, my parents knew that I had anxiety. At first when I was little, I wouldn't go swing on swing sets if other kids were out there because I had such bad social anxiety. Like I would not, I love to swing like my whole life. I've loved to swing. And if I went to the park and there was kids, I wouldn't go. I'd make my parents take me home. And they, they used to get so pissed because they would take me all this way. And then I'd be like, sorry, I can't. And um, finally, like, I think I was about maybe 13. We were at my aunt's house. She just moved and we hadn't seen her for a couple months. And I told my mom, I said, can you ask her where her bathroom is? And my mom was like, that's so weird for you to not be able to ask your own aunt where her bathroom is. And it is weird. You know, it's like different. And I wouldn't even say it's weird. It's just not, it's not very normal behavior. So, and I mean, that's when my parents kind of figured, you know, something might be wrong. And I did go to a doctor and they diagnosed me with anxiety and depression. So I was in about junior high when I was diagnosed with both of those. And my battle with anxiety and depression kind of was up and down my whole life, to be honest. And finally, um, you know, I was about 19. It was actually March 20th of 2017. I remember the March 20th, like so specifically, but sometimes I mix up the years, but I want to say it was March 20th, 2017. Um, I had just had enough. I had been depressed and I was thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. And then one day I woke up and I was like, okay, today's the day. And I wrote my note and I said, all right. And I gave my parents, you know, my passcode of my note. And it was really hard because I remember like thinking in my head, I was like, you know, everybody says suicide is selfish. But to me in that moment, I was like, it's selfish to make me live this life that I don't want to live. That was my thought at the time, which is not true. <laughs> so I remember I wrote my note and I left it and I came home on my lunch and I, you know, I, I did it. And I remember my mom was on jury duty, so she wasn't supposed to be home. It was like supposed to work out perfectly. Well, she, I had texted her and I was like, don't come home, like call the cops because I don't want you to see me. And that's, she came home right away. My my so-called friend Savannah came and, you know, I went to the hospital and it was kind of a, bl- a big blur. But I remember when I woke up, I was, I wasn't like, oh my God, I'm so thankful. I was, I was pissed at first. I was like, I'm so fucking mad this didn't work. Like, how come this didn't work? And I felt like even more of a failure because I'm like, I failed, you know, I couldn't even, couldn't even kill myself. That's how, that's how bad I sucked. And And that's not true, you know, and like it took me a few days. I was in the hospital for five days. It took me probably four of them before in the beginning. It was just like, I want to get out of here. I can't believe that this didn't work. I want to do it again. And then it turned into, I just want to go home. I'll say whatever I need to say to go home. And then finally it was like realizing that, you know, I really had a problem and I was lucky to be alive. And honestly, to this day, I really think that I'm lucky to be alive. And it still is like an ongoing battle. Like Brooke said, like I have never beat my depression. I've never beat my anxiety. I've seen multiple therapists. I've been on 10 different medications. I'm currently on about four different medications. And, you know, it's something that is an everyday struggle and I will be okay. Or at least I think I'm okay. And then one day it will just be so bad. And I remember like how I know if I'm doing really bad is I'll just start crying in the shower. Like I will, I will cry in the shower until I can't cry anymore. And it's, it's so heartbreaking to think about now. Like I started journaling, um, when I was in the hospital and that was like a really good outlet for me because I was like, this is a way for me to tell everybody what's, 
going on inside my head without having to actually tell people what's going on inside my head and to just get it out, like get it out of my head and put it somewhere else. And that's like a big thing that helped me with not only my depression, but my anxiety. It's because I will think and think and think and think and think and think and think until I drive myself literally fucking nuts. And so that's something that I had to start doing. And it's, it's really hard, honestly, like to try to, to cope and to find coping mechanisms because depression really, it's like a, it's like a tornado, you know, it, it sucks you in deeper and deeper and, and eventually, you know, you get past the point of wanting help. And I think it's so important to make sure that you do look into resources once you start feeling that because there is that tipping point between, you know, I'm depressed and I want help. And now I'm depressed and I don't care. I don't care anymore. I don't want help. I don't care. I just want to be done. And you need to make sure that you get the help before you get to that point. And that's something that I didn't do, but now I do. So they actually diagnosed me. Like I said, I was 19 at the time when I had my suicide attempt. They said I had borderline personality disorder. And if you look that up, that's like what serial killers have. Like it's not a bad thing because, you know, you can't help what mental illness you have. So you can't say like, oh, wow, you got the worst one. Like they diagnosed me with borderline personality disorder. And I remember reading up on it and it's it's similar to what I think I have. But it actually took until this year back in like March, I went and saw a psychiatrist, which if you're struggling with mental health, I recommend seeing a psychiatrist. I think family doctors, you may have a great family doctor, but you need someone who specializes in this and aren't just going to give you the most prescribed medication, like the most popular medication. You need someone that's going to listen to you because of this. So I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. So for four years, I'm thinking, you know, I've got this disorder. And I went and saw a psychiatrist and she said, no, you don't have that. That's commonly misdiagnosed in teenage girls because it has a lot of behavior teenage girls have. She's like, I think that you have ADHD. And she said that can cause a lot of your anxiety and depression. And it's true. As soon as I got on my ADHD meds, I felt not only was I more managed, but I was less anxious because I was not forgetting all the details. I wasn't so scatterbrained. I wasn't so all over the place. And I think that honestly, my suicide attempt was the best and worst thing that happened to me because when I was in the hospital, they had actual like classes that you had to do. They weren't required, but you attended these classes and they taught you like coping skills. They taught you so many things. And I talked to other people who, you know, had similar experiences to me. And it's, it was just so eye-opening to be able to see I'm not the only one dealing with this. And okay, this is how this person deals with this. I never even thought about that. And I think in a lot of ways, I learned a lot of things from being there, even though it was the lowest of lows, it really took me hitting the lowest low to be able to get back up and say, okay, I can do this. And it really is like, and I remember people telling me all the time, it's going to get better. It'll get better. It'll get better. And I remember saying to myself so many times, I'm like, people say it's getting better, but it's not getting better. They say it's going to get better, but it's not better. How long is, how long until it's better? And I honestly feel like sometimes you do have to hit your lowest low to get to where you need to be. Yeah, like Tori had said, um, in the hospital, I know Tori said, like, she was super angry, you know, she didn't want to talk to her parents, she didn't want to talk to her family. I remember being in the hospital and not talking to my parents for the first four days. I mean, they drove an hour to come and visit on their, you know, scheduled visitations, and I just didn't want to talk to them because I was so upset that the things, you know, I had tried didn't work out. And, the, you know, like I was like, you guys don't even understand. Like you can say you understand and you don't. And keep in mind, when I went to the hospital, my parents literally took me out kicking and screaming. My dad literally picked me up. Fireman carried me over his shoulders out the door. 
Um, and I had kind of like hit a fit of rage because I was just so angry at the world that, I mean, I literally like have kind of blocked it out that I don't remember anything I had said, but you know, my mom was like, you were saying things to your dad that like, I, I can't even repeat because they were that hurtful and saying things to me and, you know, like it just, it wasn't who I was. I was just in such a, you know, what? frenzy because I was like no like this wasn't supposed to work out like this like I had it all planned and it's not working out like this like I can't and I think like one of my biggest regrets was my little sister and my little brother were in the house at the time and they had seen all of this go down like they had seen me screaming like my dad carrying me and I remember getting home and it was almost like being in a different house because like everyone was kind of walking on eggshells like they didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to do because in that instance of like going through something like that, a lot of the times people don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. And like the one, like I remember the one thing I wanted most is like, I just wanted like, I just wanted everyone to pretend it never happened, which obviously isn't the best way to handle it. But I was just so upset. I was embarrassed. I was, you know, all of the above. And I remember going into my sister's room one night and just laying, and my sister is five years younger than me. Like, I'm the big sister. And I remember going and laying in her bed and her, like, spooning me. And I remember crying. I was like, this isn't how it's supposed to work. Like, I'm supposed to be your big sister. Like, I'm supposed to help you. Like, not the other way around. And just sobbing. Like, literally crying into my little sister's arms. And, you know, like, it's just one of those, like, moments where, like, you are so vulnerable and you know same thing like I remember talking to my brother in the driveway and just crying and it's it's one of those things where you're so vulnerable and I think that's like the hardest part is like I said I have some control issues and being in a hospital where someone you know I was scheduled my group therapy I was scheduled my one-on-one therapy my family therapy you know the whole nine yards although it did help me at the time I felt so out of control because I was like I don't want to do this right now like this isn't on my time I want to control it I want to say what I'm going to talk I want to you know do what I want to do when I want to do and I remember sitting down with one of my therapists after my parents had left because we tried to have a family meeting and I literally just didn't talk the whole time I literally just sat there and I was like I have nothing to say to them and I remember they left and she came into my room and we just had this heart to heart about like you're here because your parents love you you know there are a lot of kids who their parents would just dismiss it and leave it as is. And she's like, your parents want to get you help. And it was one of those things like it, it sometimes like Tori said, it takes your lowest, you know, it takes you to get to your lowest low before you can open your eyes and realize like, okay, although this isn't where I want to be, this is where I need to be. And, you know, after that, my mental health didn't just get better. I didn't have fucking fairy dust coming out my ass and, I wasn't dancing down the street like it's been a long road and there are still times where I will just lay in bed and cry and Joe's like why are you crying and I'm like I don't know like I just feel like everything's out of control I feel like I don't know what the fuck I'm doing with my life I'm 23 I should have shit figured out you know I should be here in my life and I'm not and it's okay like you can have dreams and aspirations. You can have a goal timeline. That's great. But just because you don't hit those goals or you're not where you thought you'd be, that doesn't make you a failure. That doesn't make you a bad person. Like I remember in the hospital, I was like, you know, my sister is this successful, like she's a beautiful dancer. She's, you know, a beautiful this, this or that or whatever. And I was like, I have nothing. Like I literally have nothing to show for being who I am. Like I'm just a person and my therapist was like you know you have this trait and you have that trait in talking but 
it, it kind of takes someone else opening your eyes and like telling you like, okay, you're not worthless because at the time that's literally all you feel. Like I remember just feeling horrible and I had actually gotten out of the hospital a couple days before Thanksgiving and I remember like going to Thanksgiving dinner and just having a panic attack because like I didn't know what to do. I felt so like, you know, I had been in a hospital for the last two weeks and I just felt like, okay, now this isn't my normal. Like you guys ripped me from one normal and then put me in a new normal and now want me to go back to my old normal. And I remember like telling my mom, like, that's not fair. Like you can't ask that of me. And you know, my parents weren't asking that of me, but at the time I was just so frazzled and it's something that I I've definitely had to work on um I've recently been diagnosed my most recent diagnosis is obsession compulsive disorder and when you hear that like when I hear OCD I think okay she is really tidy she cleans you will come in my house and be like this bitch lives in a frat house there are beer bottles all over puff bars all over obsession compulsive disorder is not cleaning I mean there's forms of it that could be like rituals or cleaning I will have literal panic attacks that I you know feel like because I didn't follow my day to a certain routine something bad is going to happen to me or happen to a family member or someone I care about I've literally woken up at 2 a.m to text you know my sister and be like hey are you home are you safe like are you okay you know different things just it's it's such a shitty thing to live with. And if anyone else is living with any mental illness, I empathize with you. I feel for you. Just know, you know, there is no timeline for it to get better. It may be a progression. One day you may be feeling the be- better and the next day you're not. And that's okay. You don't have to be, you know, even if you are receiving treatment and you feel like I should be better, there is no timeline for healing. There is no, you know, okay, you've got to be good to go by May of 2020 or 2021. Like there's no timeline. It's okay to do things on your own time and to feel like you're, you're following your route of healing. And like I said, you know, being in the hospital helped me so much. And there was actually a girl that I met there, um, who checked herself in because she had a stillborn. And I think that honestly, you know, that's nothing to be ashamed of. And I think there's so many valuable things that I learned that, now I know if I really think that, you know, I'm going to have another suicide attempt that I know I'm just going to check myself in because it's honestly at the time when I got checked in, I was like, I'm so embarrassed and I'm so glad that I did it. I really didn't have a choice, but I'm so glad that it happened. But honestly, what I have to say, like Brooke said, it, you know, getting out of the hospital, it was so uncomfortable because I didn't want to talk about it and I didn't want to tell people about it. And I was so embarrassed, you know. Because people are just like, and I don't think anybody else knew how to approach it. And and that was the hardest part for me is like the transition between like, yeah, this happened. So now what? And honestly, like even to this day, I think I am almost too open with some people. Like, you know, people in my life are still really affected by it. And it's still really like a sensitive topic to everybody. And I've kind of like healed in my own ways. And I know talking to other people about it, it's almost as they're like, how are you just going to like throw this around? And you know, just bring this up out of nowhere. But I think the the most important thing is if people do that, don't shut them down, like encourage them to keep talking. Because I think that talking with people is, you know, that's why people see therapists is to, to heal. So don't shut them down because then they're going to be even more embarrassed because that's something as a suicide attempt survivor, I can say is like the embarrassment I felt for like a long time is, is heavy. 
So make sure you don't shut people down. Make sure you let them open up. And honestly, like, it's really crazy because whoever's listening to this, like, I want you to know, like, you're not alone. And it's actually kind of crazy because um, a friend of mine had actually committed and succeeded in committing suicide on the same day that I attempted my suicide. And, like, to this day, I'll still, like, DM him on Twitter and be like, miss you. And it's so weird the things that happen when when you lose someone that you love due to suicide. And I think that that's something that like when you're going through it, you're like, yeah, I know they'll be sad, but they'll be better off. And I promise you they won't be better off. I remember one thing talking about, like talking to with my mom when I got out, she was like, you know, like why? Like, I just want to know why you think we would be okay. And that's not something like, I don't know. I never really thought about it. I was just like, yeah, they'll be fine. They'll move on. Like, my parents have other kids. And my mom was like, you know, I can have a million more kids, which, I mean, theoretically isn't possible. But, you know, she's like, I can have another kid. It'll never be you. Like, and that's the thing is each person is their own person. I have so many people in my life that I know struggle with mental illness. And without them in my life, I would not be okay. I would not be the same you know, like Tori said, you're not alone. And we've mentioned it before in other podcasts, like our sexual assault podcast, our LGBTQ podcast. If you're struggling and you feel like you can have, you know, you have no one to talk to, DM Tori, DM I, you know, DM our, our Twitter page, like Instagram, you know, I promise you, if you message me and you're say, hey, I am struggling really, really bad. And I just need someone to talk to. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not going to like be like, oh my God, how weird this person is messaging me you can, you can do whatever. Like if you have my phone number, freaking call me. I mean, I can't tell you, I know that there was, I remember one time calling the suicide hotline on a camping trip when I was surrounded by family. But at the time I was just, you know, in my thing and I couldn't see past that moment and calling the suicide hotline because I was like, I, I just don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to do. Like there are so many different out, you know, different pages you can reach out to different things you can reach out to. So I actually volunteered for a uh, crisis text line, which is if you're not comfortable calling someone on the phone, you can text them. And the people on the other line, they actually go through like really extensive training. It was like a whole six week ordeal, like, and it's really eye opening. So there's the suicide hotline is 1-800-273-8255 and it's 24 seven. Or if you're more comfortable texting, 741-741 is who you'll text to speak with a crisis text line. And honestly, like Brooke said, you know, we are here for you 24-7. We, I have stopped what I'm doing in the middle of the night to talk to someone because I know how, how important it is to have someone. Don't go through this alone. As much as you think you may be alone, don't go through it alone. And it's so hard because, you know, you really do think that you'll be doing everybody a favor by ending your life. But I promise you, you are not. You are not. And I thought the same thing is like people really thought like, and that's what I said in my note, you know, I really thought like everyone said it's so selfish, but it's selfish to make someone live a life you don't want to live. But like, that's not true. And, and I see that now because I really thought I was doing everybody a favor, but then knowing and seeing people who've been affected by losing someone to suicide, like it changes your whole life. And I promise you, whatever you did and whatever you feel like you're doing or however draining you are to them or however you think that you're making them feel, you're not. And even if you are, they would feel so much worse without you here. And with that being said, we just want to let you all know we love you. We are here for you. We support you. Like I said, 
DM our personal page, DM our Twitter, you know, our Spill the Tea page. One of us will reach back out to you, I promise. We don't care if we don't know you've never met you. Reach out to us. Um, you are loved. You are valued. You're supported. You're not alone. Um, and like I said, like, you're not, you're not going through this alone. There are so many different people. There are so many things you can do. Um, I'll try and list on our Twitter page too a couple different links you can reach out to, you know, the whole nine yards because we want you guys to be safe. We want you to feel safe. And if you ever have a moment of like, I'm going to do it, I don't care what time it is, reach out. You know, we want to be there for you. All right, guys, we'll see you next week.